Hi there, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This sermon by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled Forgiving. Human forgiveness has become a trite and shallow attempt to relinquish resentment and anger. However, God desires that we not only forgive, but love those who have wronged us with a deep-seated love from God. Please feel free to contact us at www.ellersley.com. Enjoy the message. See the title of this message, Forgiving. I'm, a, I, I'm not afraid of that many things. I'm somewhat afraid of this message. Uh, this is, you know, on Monday night when all of the students arrived and we met in here for the banquet, the opening banquet. It's one of the most important days, most significant days in my life. It ranks right up there with my wedding day. In other words, that was no small thing that a lot of you were here for. Praying 17 years for this, and then suddenly, there we are. I'm not just standing up there alone. You guys are here. I mean, it was an amazing moment, Uh, and I... All I did was cry uh, for the longest time. Hudson, I still don't know if he fully understands what Daddy was doing uh, up there. He was standing next to me. All I did was cry, and it was for quite some time. It was absolutely beautiful. But God has been doing something very deep within my life this week, and there's part of me that wonders why couldn't he have done it a week before, because why is he pressing this issue to the surface right as you guys are arriving, because it really doesn't technically, in my mind, have anything to do with the students arriving. However, I know how God works. Uh, he's, he's pressing something forward. And the issue is that of forgiveness. I know that Jesus Christ forgives Eric Ludi. We, we gave a message this week at Ellerslie about the blood of Jesus, and it, it's profound. It is extraordinary. Most Christians understand the blood of Jesus and the ability of God to forgive or the desire of God to forgive at the inception of our Christian life. We come to Jesus, he washes us clean, he forgives us of all our past, and then he sets us on a course. The problem is most of us, we we get into that cloak of Jesus. It's, It's the blood of Jesus, and it wraps about us like a cloak, and it enables us to enter into the holy of holies. Because we have no merit on our own. I was using the illustration during that talk. I was saying that to get into God's presence, if we were to liken it to something, that there's such an incredible cost that must be paid to enter into the holy of holies. And so I was using a number that no man could ever earn in his lifetime, 10 trillion. And I was saying, if that was the requirement, and we came with our $20 bill, And we said, God, would this cover it? Can I come in now? In other words, we whip up a little righteousness. We do our best to do what we think God wants us to do, and we bring $20 to the table. It's not enough. The propitiation of his blood means that it satisfied the cost. It satisfied his justice, his just requirements. He did it. Jesus did it. And so when we come to Jesus, he cloaks us. He's holding out his his cloak, and we walk into it, and he wraps it about us, and it's himself. It's his righteousness. It's his blood. It's pure. It's perfect. And in that, as long as we are cloaked in that, we can walk into the holy of holies and partake of his presence. And in his presence is the treasure chest of grace, and everything that is needed for life and godliness is available to us there. So most of us have an understanding, at least at a basic level, of this cloak, of this avenue of entry into the holy place. And when we become Christians, we come, we esteem it. We say, I need that cloak, Jesus. Could you wrap me in it? And that's the inception of our walk with God. But then a lot of us feel like we are to take off that cloak and set it down and sort of hang it on a rack, and then we're supposed to come up with our own cloak. We're supposed to try and sew our own works together that we can somehow maintain a relationship with God. But no matter how hard we try, we cannot earn $10 trillion to come back into his presence. There's only one avenue into his presence, and it's the same avenue, and it will always be the same avenue, and that is that cloak of Jesus Christ. We cannot muster up the life of perfection to enter into the Holy of Holies. Now, here's the tension point that I talked about this week with the students, too, is that that doesn't mean that you just live any way you want and, and then just put on the cloak and say, come on in. God, Paul says, should we then go on sinning that grace would abound? God forbid. 
What God intends is for us to put on this cloak, enter into his presence, and live there. Live in his presence, partake of his grace, his triumphant life, so that underneath this cloak, we are becoming more and more like Christ. But we're not $10 trillion worth of an example of him. We are not perfect. Therefore, we must always remain in that cloak. That cloak, the blood of Jesus Christ, is what saves. It is. It is what rescues you. It's what started the rescue project in your life, and it's what will finish it. And it's what you need today. Not just tomorrow, today, and it's what you needed in the beginning. It's the whole package. You remain in him because you can never whip up the life. See, I understand this. What I'm talking to you about, I have a deep understanding that God has worked into me. You see, there are times when I fail. I esteem God's righteousness, and I have the life of Christ within me. And my life is different than this world. I testify to that. I have strength in my life that I know others haven't discovered yet. I have it. But that doesn't mean I'm living without need of a cloak. I need the blood of Jesus wrapped around my life. My little thousand-dollar pittance that I lay before him saying, God, I have a thousand. That person over there only has a hundred. I'm doing pretty good. I cannot measure up to the righteousness of Jesus Christ, no matter how strong and mature I become under this cloak, if you will. So I understand this. God has been working this into me for a long period of time. But there's another truth in understanding and receiving his forgiveness. It's understanding how to forgive You see, there are those who seem to have taken it upon themselves to come after me. Whatever I represent, whatever I'm spouting, obviously deserves a little critique, and it needs to be shut down, according to some people. They don't like me. It's not fun to have enemies, especially when you don't choose them to be enemies. It's not like I came up to someone, hit him in the face and say, take that, and then walk the other way. They're like, I don't like that Eric Ludy guy. All I want is Jesus Christ to be glorified. That's my singular desire, and yet people don't like me. They hate me, and I've had people come and undermine me, say false things against me. You know what? It's hard to know how to respond in those moments when someone who oftentimes you even trust says things about you. What do you say back? And so... I have forgiven. And so you could say, yay, Eric, wonderful. That's the way you you should do it. But here's my question. Did I forgive the human way or did I forgive the God way? That's a key question here because what I'm weighing, what's weighing on me, Sunday night going into this very important week in my life, I had a dream. And it was a dream of someone in my past. And this someone basically took a dagger out, stabbed me in the back with it, turned it, and then walked off. And I've forgiven that person. I don't hang on my memory of that. I don't stew about it. I forgave them. But whenever someone brings up, Eric, have you ever been hurt in your life? Boom, that person is right there in front of me. In other words, it's very easy to remember what was done. Even though I've forgiven the act, When you study God's forgiveness, you see something different about it. There's a different quality. You see, what I have in my relationship with this person, it's almost like a blankness of soul. I wouldn't say I have an overwhelming love and compassion for that person. I just am not against them. I don't like that. Because I was hurt very deeply, and yet when I look inside of me, I'm a loving guy. I care deeply about people. The people in my life get the best of Eric Ludi. However, that person doesn't get my best. They don't get my champion arm, standing beside them and cheering them on. They just aren't getting my wrath. They aren't getting my anger. They aren't getting my resentment. They aren't getting my unforgiveness. I'm not holding anything over them. But I'm also not giving them something. And so Eric Ludi is a bit in turmoil this week because I started out Monday and I woke up, and I've, I've come to Jesus Christ in this point many times. I said, God, is there anything more you need of me? And I haven't really had a clear sense of an answer to that. But there are two stories in my, not in my past, but in my study of Christian history, 
that have come back to me over and over and over again. One of them, I'd like to share both of them with you very quickly, and one of them is Reese Howells. Reese Howells went to a little small, it was an island in the the tropics. Actually, I don't remember what the island was, but uh, it was a tropical climate that he went to, and he was was taking another guy down there uh, for a reason, for health reasons. And when he came down there, uh, this missionary stuck him in this environment, and it was a very unjust situation, okay? He got stuck in the fisherman's rest in this place just infested with bugs and cockroaches and spiders and just everything creepy-crawly. And it was just disgusting, full of cobwebs, and no human being should ever be subjected to this. And there were other places this missionary could have put him, but he stuck him there. And Reese Howells found himself upset about this. It's like, who does that guy think he is? He calls himself a Christian, and yet this is the way he is treating me. And Reese Howes noticed something within him. He noticed a retaliation. He, he noticed that he was considering his needs, and he was offended. And whenever you sense that you are offended, there is something alive within you. There is something that is able to be grasped. It is able, there's a hook that is able to get in you because you're still alive. And you notice it when you're offended. It's like, that's not right. Now, you could be exactly truthful, and you could be accurate in saying that wasn't an appropriate Christian behavior. But why is it that it's getting to you so much? Why is it that it's able to grab a hold of you? And now it's controlling your mind, and you're you're thinking. Now you're processing it. Instead of being able to focus on what God has for you, you're stewing about it. And then you start to work through this. You go, this is unhealthy for me. I'm going to, you know what, I just need to forgive that person. I just need to forgive them. So you concentrate, you focus, and you say, I forgive them. They didn't do the right thing, but I'm not going to hold it against them anymore. I'm not going to let it badger me anymore. I forgive them. And so in a sense, you take them off your hook, and you just set them off to the side and stick them on God's hook. God can deal with that. Well, that's good. Okay, I'm not going to complain about that. I do that all the time because I have jabs constantly. And I choose to deliberately, instead of stew about it, I don't spend time stewing about it. I immediately stick them on God's hook. I'm not responsible for their behavior. I'm responsible for mine. And God bless them. In other words, I pray for them. I, do, I have the right heart. I do it right. I would like to propose that Eric is still missing a dimension. And that's the dimension I want to bring to you. Because this is what God has been working me over on this week. Reese Howells, while he was in this underground chamber full of bugs, realized that there was something still alive within him. And he said, God, I commit myself. I'm going to stay in this room, and I'm going to live in this room until you break me of whatever this is. Whatever is able to take offense, whatever is so having such a difficult time in being able to not just forgive this guy, but love him. I want God to be able to forgive him the way you forgive him because God removes even the remembrance of it. It no longer blockades the relationship. You see, imagine you forgive someone and then someone comes up to you and says, I can't believe what that person did to you. And what does it immediately do? It fosters that old emotion. You're trying to push it down because the old emotion is still there. There is still a deep remembrance at the cellular level of your soul. And it's baked in there. It's deep. And even though you've moved it all out and you've cleaned it all out, when someone comes and presses on that one button, there's a little flame that goes up. There's something still there. But when Jesus Christ forgives us, did you know there are no buttons that you can push with him to remind him of the things that we did to him? Whatever that is, I want it. I want it in the depths of my soul. I don't want to forgive as a human. I want to forgive as God forgives. And for that to happen, God must do this in us. He must set us free. And I take great satisfaction in the fact that Reese Howells, a man that I highly regard, in his maturity was still wrestling with these things too. That's my one pacifying element that I have to deal with this week. It's like, okay, I'm not not supposed to just feel under the weight of this in, in the wrong way. But God, do this in me, please. Reese Howells was set free in such a massive way while he was living in the fisherman's rest to the point where he loved it there. The sweetest communion he ever had with God was in this bug-infested place and he never wanted God to call him anywhere else. And he loved that missionary. 
He loved him. And when people would bring up the fact of what this missionary did, there was no hold. There was nothing there. And I remember his cry in the book, it's gone. It's gone. I knew I was set free from it. That statement, I want it. I want to know what it is, and I want to remain in that fisherman's rest with bugs crawling on me if necessary to get that full freedom at the deepest levels of my soul where I don't just forgive a person and say, you know what, I'm no longer holding that against you, but I actually become a champion for their good. I become an advocate of love in their life to see them conquered by the grace of Jesus Christ. Second story. Corrie Ten Boom, who was a, a, a woman that lived in Holland in the midst of the Holocaust, and her family brought in Jews, and was, they were hiding them. The book, their, her famous biography is called The Hiding Place. And they would hide Jews in their home. Unbelievable stories. And so it was her dad and her, her, her sister herself. Both of them were, were single. And they were older women. And this one man who they trusted, who was a Christian, came up and was attempting to negotiate terms of getting more Jews in. And it turns out he was actually bought off by uh, the Nazis to expose them. And he had to have proof. So he, he said, I have some, uh, some people that need rescuing, but they're going to need X amount of money. So she took all the money that they had to rescue these lives and gave it to this man. And this man used that as the criminal evidence against them. And they all, her dad, her and her sister, were turned over to the Nazis as spies, as, as actual enemies of the state, and they were brought to a concentration camp. And in that concentration camp, her dad died and her sister died. Okay, whatever grievance you have, I don't think it measures up to that grievance. Under the banner of Christ, coming to her, lying, and then ultimately killing her father and her sister. And Corey Tenboom felt that she had a right to hate this man. She was a strong Christian. This woman is something else. But she felt if there was ever a situation where there was a right to hate a man and to hold it over that man's soul and to not allow him any reprieve, what he did was inexcusable. And Jesus came into that picture, into that argument of her soul, and said, but are you willing to love him the way I do? Are you willing to forgive him because I am willing? What was done to Jesus far outweighs what was done to Corey Ten Boom. What we have done to Jesus oftentimes far outweighs what was done to Corey Ten Boom. And yet our Jesus has such a capacity to love. It does not mean our God doesn't have standards. It does not mean our God is not just. It does not mean that if someone snubs their nose at God that they don't get an eternal consequence for it. But when anyone comes to our Jesus and asks for that forgiveness, he forgives. And he forgives in a manner which is extraordinary. What he did on that cross is absolutely unbelievable. I would like to go through a few things. First of all, I'm going to read through what I would call the forgiveness of the human variety. It made the cho- it's made the choice to no longer hold the offense against the person. This is when you've forgiven the human variety. That's, you've made the choice to no longer hold the offense against the person. And it has chosen to stew about the grievance no more. It brings about, and this is the result of it, it brings about a bland, non-feeling blankness of soul toward the offending person. It no longer hates, but it also doesn't love. This sort of forgiveness saves us from the deadly effects of resentment and bitterness, but finds nothing of the robust power of Christ in the forgiveness process. For after all is said and done, the fault is still remembered even though it is no longer resented. What happens when we forgive after the human variety is, yes, we are free in the psychological sense. In other words, a good psychologist is going to say it's good for you to forgive. Why? 
because it removes that resentment and bitterness, and resentment and bitterness is like poison sitting upon your soul. It eats you alive. It is better, even if you don't know Christ, it is better to forgive than to hold a grudge. A grudge eats away at your soul. So even just throw Jesus out of the discussion. Let's just discuss it psychologically speaking. You don't know Jesus. We're not talking about Jesus. It's still better to forgive. But a forgiveness of the natural nature doesn't necessarily represent the kingdom of God any more than the love of a natural nature, the peace, the joy, kindness, the gentleness, the patience. You can have all of these things in a natural sense, but there's no triumph in them. There is no picture of heaven come to earth. What God desires in our lives is a picture of heaven come to earth. And for that to happen, it must be of the heavenly variety. Forgiveness of the spirit variety. It not only frees the captive from the net of resentment. In other words, that one who you have been holding your grudge against. You have a net that you've wrapped them around called resentment. They can feel it. It's a really interesting thing when you know someone is holding a grudge against you. They are trying to stick a net around you and hold you tight. They want you to feel it. Yes, it's killing them at the time, at the same time, but it's also hurting you. And so forgiveness of the spirit variety removes the net. But it doesn't just do that. It doesn't just remove them from the net of resentment. It frees them from, the, from their fault, from the net of one's remembrance. Because we also have a net of remembrance, and we lug it around with us. Even though we've forgiven all these things, we can draw on them at any point in time to remember what we have done. We forgave that. For some reason, we still carry it around. We can remember it. We can remember those hurts, and those hurts still have a sting within us. But what the spirit forgiveness does is it cuts that net and it lets all those memories go. Any memory that is going to cloud and hinder your ability to live and reconcile relationship and friendship with these people, let it go. Anything that would hinder. It doesn't mean that you deny facts. It just means you do not hold it as a statement of who that person is and who that person will always be. That that person has always done that, but you forgave it. That person is let free from that. You can have a normal relationship with them working and moving forward without needing to draw on that information from this day forth. So it's, it doesn't offer, oh, wait a minute. It's a net of one's remembrance. It is the fault forgotten, removed from the equation of relationship. And Christianity doesn't offer neutrality, a bland, non-filling, blank soul response to the now forgiven soul. But rather, Christianity offers kindness, Warmth of being, tender-hearted forgiveness, it offers love. The forgiven now become the object of love and specific prayer with an honest God-deposited desire to see them triumph in Jesus Christ. It's an honest, God-given desire, longing for them to triumph in Jesus Christ. They may not be triumphing right now, but you deeply desire it. And you commit yourself even in prayer to say, God, I know the state of their soul. I'm after it. I want to see them triumph. Because that's what God does. He doesn't just forgive us, but then he becomes our great advocate. He washes us, but then he stands behind us and supports us. I want to go through a few things to sort of give the the biblical understanding of what we're talking about and the significance of it. Because I'm not saying these things because I just think they're a bonus version of Christianity. It's like, you know what? I think we should amp up our forgiveness in the church. I think it'd just be better. It's, it's just like, you know what? This new exercise in the gym, if you did that, it'll just or add a little more cardiovascular strength to you. Just be a little healthier. This isn't about adding a little more health to the, your spiritual life. This is a foundation stone. And if we miss this, do you know that it has the potential to erode every other aspect of our Christian life? We become vulnerable, and the enemy will try and take advantage of it. Cherishing the sacrifice. Now, this is a statement from, it's in Corinthians, but 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven through 32. It's going to seem like it has nothing to do with what we're talking about. I'm using it as a raw material. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread, speaking of, you know, this is basically about the last, or the Holy Communion, the remembrance and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. 
For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Like I said, this is going to seem like it has nothing to do with it. We're talking about taking communion. But when you understand, you cherish the sacrifice that Jesus gave, you say, this is valuable. What Jesus Christ has given me is of such great worth that when I take it, I take it understanding full well what I'm dealing with. That I'm taking in the very life and substance of Jesus Christ into my life. I'm not talking about transubstantiation here. I'm talking, not saying that bread is actual body, flesh. It turns into, I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's a symbol of what Jesus actually does in the human life, and that is he enters. His body and his blood actually enters our existence, and we become his body, and his blood becomes our life in reality. When we understand that, what we should do is we should pause, and we should say, this is serious business. If I'm calling myself a Christian, if I'm going to take in the life of Christ, I must be right before him. And so we open ourselves up, and we say, examine me. Lord Jesus, because if there is anything in me that is contrary to the body and blood of Jesus, you must bring it out. De- deal with it. Because if you don't, it is amazing, but it actually becomes an inroads for the enemy. There are many that are sickly and falling asleep among you, meaning dying among you. This is the church of Jesus Christ, because they were taking the body and the blood irreverently. They didn't understand what it was that they were dealing with. They were dealing with God Almighty, the consuming fire, coming and dwelling within their very bodies. You do not take that lightly. And when you understand the sacrifice, when you cherish it, it causes you to come before God and say, examine me, please. If I'm going to come before you, if I'm going to represent your name, examine me. So that's just raw material because I'm going to build on that. The dangers of unforgiveness. This isn't Eric's opinion. This is what the Word of God says. And for those of you that are cherishing a little unforgiveness in your life, I know this is going to shake you at the core. But I want you to take it as conviction, not condemnation. Allow the prick in your soul to say, Jesus, you must do it. Get this out of me. Please deal with it. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. And do not give the devil an opportunity. My family was raised with this concept. I never would go to sleep without asking forgiveness or without seeking it in some other way if there was some way of reconciling a relationship. This is the way my family was raised. From this scripture right here, do not let the sun go down upon your wrath. Another translation says anger. In other words, if you have a grudge against, you have an offense against someone, if they have an offense against you, make it right before the sun goes down. In other words, the concept has nothing to do with the sun actually going down. It's like, well, it's dark out. The sun already went down. Oh, no. It means that day, now, right now, you deal with it. If you're going to bring a sacrifice or a gift to the altar, you go and deal with your brother before you do it. It's now. You deal with it today. You don't wait until later. The sun goes down every day, so deal with it today. Why? Do not give the devil an opportunity. That means that going to sleep on it, allowing it to remain, is giving the devil space. That's another translation for it. Don't give the devil space. You're giving him access. You're giving him a breach, an entry point. Don't give it to him. 2 Corinthians 2. Oh, whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. This is Paul speaking to the Corinthian church. And he's saying, if you forgive anything, I forgive also. And if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave forgave I it in the person of Christ. Now listen to his reason for why this forgiveness is necessary in the body of Christ. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. What an interesting context for that statement. In other words, unforgiveness is creating a blockage. It is stopping something up, and it's also creating an opening, an avenue, an entry point for the devil who has no right to your life as a Christian. No right. And if you live in the blood of Jesus, he has no right to you. He cannot take advantage of you. But when you are offended, the test comes in the spiritual realm, and the enemy sits there waiting to see if you will let him in. 
And if you choose to harden, if you choose to resent, if you choose to hold a grudge, the enemy can stroll in and make misery of your life. Don't fall for it. The principle of heavenly resistance. God resists the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. This is just a fact. So in other words, there are things that God actually resists, which is a fascinating statement. Because God just doesn't accept everything. He actually resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, what I'm going to give you is a principle that I'm going to back up in Scripture, and that is this. God resists the unforgiving, but gives grace unto the forgiving. Now, I want to back this up. This isn't just Eric's opinion on the matter. I'm just giving you a nice little summation here. God resists the unforgiving just like he resists the proud, but gives grace unto the forgiving. It is very important in God's economy to be forgiving. Listen to these statements. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. As we forgive our debtors. For if ye... This is the follow-up to that. There's one other line finishing the, the prayer that Jesus gives as the model prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, that whole prayer. And after it, I have dot, 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 I took that part out, and it says, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, their errors, their mistakes against you, neither will your Father forgive yours. Do you feel the full weight of that one? Because we should as a church. This is basic Christianity. This is what we walk into at the beginning. We need to understand this. We don't just claim forgiveness from Jesus Christ. We, we, come and ex- we let him examine us. And we say, you know what? I gave you that cloak, Eric, so that I could deal with this and get this junk out so the enemy has no more access to your life. Let this cloak be upon you. Please wrap yourself in my blood and in my forgiveness. And in the process, you always let go of everyone else that you have a grievance against. Always. So that you never hinder my blood from being activated on your behalf. This is a very fascinating line. This is a few pages long. But then came Peter to him, coming to Jesus, and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? I mean, how many times should I do this? Could you imagine if someone just kept coming? They kept making the same mistake over, and I forgive them, and I forgive them, and I forgive them. There must be a limit to this because that person is taking advantage of my forgiveness. That is an appropriate behavior. How many times? Till seven times? Yeah, that's the Hebrew number for completion. So Peter's saying that would be a lot. I mean, if you forgave anyone seven times, that's serious forgiveness. Most of us in here would pat each other on the back and say, you did it seven times. What does Jesus say? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. What is he saying? There's no limit. He's not saying only 490 times. He's saying there is no limit. That is the attitude of grace. But until seventy times seven, therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. But forasmuch as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. You see, our king is just. And so he can't pay it, so he's going to have to make arrangements. He's going to sell his women, his children off. You know, he'll get his money back a different way. He's a just king. The servant, therefore, fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, which we know as the cross of Jesus Christ, and loosed him and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out. Follow what this servant does. The one who was just forgiven the great debt went out and found one of his fellow servants which owed him a hundred pence. And there was nothing compared to what he was guilty of. Nothing compared to his debt. Which owed him a hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison, till he should pay the debt. 
So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desired me. Thou beckoned me. That, came, that means he came close to him and asked. Should, shouldest not thou also have had compassion on the fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. Listen to the conclusion. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. That's serious scripture right there. That's the type of scripture we don't like to linger on. Because the illustration is, he became very wroth because he had forgiven you this debt. And this debt was so much greater than the, the debt that is owed to you by some human out there on planet earth who has done such a small thing to you compared to the debt that Jesus Christ himself bore on your behalf. He says, you must forgive. You must forgive. For the sake of your soul, forgive. Have the same pity that God had on you onto everyone around you that would hurt you. For verily I say unto you, again, this is going to be one of those scriptures that doesn't seem like it's going to have anything to do with what we're talking about, but just listen. It's really fascinating. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say into this mountain, be thou removed and be cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. And that's a classic thing to use when you're teaching on prayer. I mean, classic. It's faith. It's like all you have to do is ask and a mountain can be thrown in the sea. You just have to have faith the size of a mustard seed for this type of thing to be happening. But listen to what the context is around it. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. And when you stand praying, forgive. If you have aught against any, any problem with any other person, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive your trespasses, But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Do you see? This is Jesus talking. You know, some people are like red-letter Bible. I only listen to what Jesus says. It has a higher level of credibility to me. Okay? If that's your mindset on it, even though the whole thing is Jesus' words, this is what he says. When you stand praying, forgive. If you're going to stand and transact with the living God, if you're going to stand and take in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, then you forgive. You understand, you allow God to examine your soul. Don't allow anything to remain in there that would hinder. Don't allow anything, a speck of it, to remain. Forgiveness. The three saving reasons for employing it. First, the God-word reason. It makes way for the human life to enjoy God's ready forgiveness. God forgives us only to the degree that we forgive others. I know that sounds ridiculous. That sounds, for some reason, awkward. God is, in his economy, that's how it works. If we hold something against someone else, it prohibits our God from forgiving us. Do not give any reason for why the merits of the shed blood of Jesus can't be fully operational in your life. The second reason is manward. This is how it affects you. It frees the soul from both guilt, Godward, and bitterness and resentment, manward. Because when you have these things, when you have unforgiveness, you know what? You feel guilty about it. You do, but you harbor it. It's like, I don't want to let it go because I don't want to let that person off the hook. They need to know. And if I let them off the hook, they're going to get away scot-free. And when we harbor that, guess what? We feel the weight of it because we know we shouldn't be harboring guilt. But we don't know any other way to get back at that person. It kills us. And it also allows bitterness and resentment to build within us. And I don't care if you're not a Christian, any psychologist can tell you what bitterness and resentment does to the soul. But God makes it very clear in his word that bitterness and resentment rots you. It destroys you. It prepares you for hell. It doesn't prepare you for heaven. Making a passageway for the tender-hearted love of Christ to flow. It frees the soul, and it opens up a passageway so that you can be a conduit of Christ's love. Get that grudge out of the way. Get that 
thing that hampers out of the way so that you can be a conduit of Christ's love. How are we known as the disciples of Christ? By our love. Not by our grudges. By our love. Satanward, it evicts him from his place that unforgiveness lends him. His place from which he can effectively undermine and rot the human soul. For some of you, your prayers seem hindered. Your spiritual life is always not able to finally just get on top of that mountain. What's wrong? What's the issue? It could be this. That's the reason I'm preaching on it today. This isn't just Eric Ludy's issue. This is our issue as a church. Nothing should stand in the way of what God wants to do. And it has nothing to do with the fact that you did something wrong. You didn't maybe even provoke it. It might be completely unprovoked. But the way you've been treated was wrong, maybe. That has no business in this issue. It doesn't matter what was done to you. What debt is owed against you? What matters is your response towards that debt. You have been forgiven a much bigger debt. Now you go and forgive theirs. But what I want you to do is come to Jesus Christ and allow him to teach you how to forgive his way. So that you don't just let them off the hook and stick them on God's hook. But you learn to become their greatest spiritual advocate. And you stand behind them. You ask God for love for them, for that very specific person that you don't want to love. But God wants to love in and through you. They're in your life for a reason. It's not an accident. So you say, God, please, I want to love that person the way you love that person. And I want to champion their life. And it has nothing to do with if they deserve it because I didn't deserve it. It has nothing to do with deserving. They don't have to do anything just right. You know that there are issues of church discipline where you must remove someone from the fellowship. Why? So that they can basically be turned over to Satan and they can realize that what sin is doing to their life. They, so that they would repent. There's issues of church discipline. There's issues of the soul. We don't allow darkness into our midst. We remove it. And if someone is literally undermining the body of Christ, we would separate them from the body of Christ. We would not allow them in to devour the sheepfold. But that doesn't mean we, we don't learn to love and forgive it doesn't mean we hold it against them and we remember their offenses. We need to be Jesus Christ because our ultimate end game is to see their soul gain for the kingdom. That's what Jesus is about. That's what we're about. Ephesians 4, this sums it up. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Do you find a tender heart towards these people in your past? A tender heart. Ask for a tender heart. Because the one thing I've noticed this week, I'm struggling to have the tender heart towards them. I find myself having a blank heart, almost, like, oh, I still, I still have love within me. I still have tender-hearted affection for others. But I don't have the rich, warm tenderness towards them. And you could say, Eric, I understand why you don't. Because you were deeply hurt. It's not normal to have a tender heart in response to that. Yes, it's not normal. But in the kingdom of heaven, God, for some reason, has called it normal in Christianity. And that is what I hunger for. That is what I long for. I long for a tender heart towards those that abuse me and those that hurt me. Betsy Tenboom, when she was in the concentration camp, was being beaten by a Nazi uh, guard. Beaten. You know what her response was? She loved that guard. She pled for that guard. All she desires is that that guard would know Jesus Christ. And Corey got mad at her for this. You're not supposed to love them. Look what they're doing to you. Look what they're doing to the Jews. And all Betsy could think about was that poor soul that didn't know Jesus Christ. All she could think about was them. She wasn't concerned about herself. She was concerned about that poor soul that didn't know Jesus Christ. That's the Christianity we want. And even if it feels a few graduate levels beyond you, that's what we want. And that's what Jesus does. He specializes in it. I want it in me. I want it in me to the depths. My prayer this week is, God, 
I want to love them the way you love them. I want a tender heart towards them, the same heart that you have. I don't excuse sin. I don't look past things and just invite it back into my life and say, oh, you know, have access to all the Ellerslie students and say whatever you want. It's not, that's not what we mean by forgiveness. It's not stupidity. It's not not understanding how evil works, but it's understanding how love works and how love operates and how the human soul must be freed to become a channel for that love. This is a quote from a scripture I gave earlier when Paul was talking about the way that he forgave. It says, forgave I it in the person of Christ. Not in the person of Eric did I forgive them. Did I muster up the ability to forgive them? I forgave them in the person of Christ. Remember, we're clothed in Christ. And when you're clothed, guess what? You recognize the preciousness of that purchase of the cross. That blood has forgiven you. And while you're wrapped in that cloak, you forgive. You forgive in the person of Christ because you know what it cost him and you know what he forgave you. And the natural response to that sacrifice is to say, oh, and I forgive you as well. And if they come back to you, how could you have forgiven me? I forgave you because Christ forgave me. I fully, I fully have wrapped myself in the reality of what he did and how could I not forgive you? It's just an extension. I'm a flow-through channel of his love and his mercy and his tender heart. There are four kinds of bonks. Hudson, uh, when he bonks his head or something, that's a bonk. There are four kinds of bonks, and we were talking uh, this week about the bonks uh, because he, he got a bonk, and we were talking about which kind of bonk it was. And it was a bonk uh, that he got from playing. Uh, and so I was describing him the four types of bonks. There's guilt-ridden bonks that come from doing something you shouldn't be doing. Those are the worst kind of bonks to get, by the way. There's accidental bonks that come from doing something while at work or play. And there's bonks that come from being a gentleman. This is my, me speaking to him. From helping someone, from putting body in harm's way. In other words, when you stand up and you take a hit that was rightfully directed at someone else, that's a bonk. But it's a very good bonk. Okay? But there's even a bonk higher than that. And that is a bonk for the sake of Jesus. It doesn't mean that a gentlemanly bonk isn't for the sake of Jesus. But it's a bonk that comes simply because you stand for Jesus. And I want you to realize what you are being called to, you are going to get some serious bonks. And those bonks are going to hit you at the deepest, most intimate place. Those bonks will hurt. But I want you to clothe yourself in Jesus Christ. And when those bonks come, I want you to be a channel of love. I want you to immediately forgive. And when those prison guards strike you, I want you to care about that soul that is striking you because they don't understand what you have. They don't understand the goodness of Jesus Christ. They're not clothed in that garment. They don't understand the mercies of Jesus Christ, but maybe they can taste them through your response to them. That's what's needed. You are going to be hit, and there's no better way to be hit than for Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter, it says it's commendable to God. Actually, the word in the Greek is charis. Sound familiar? Grace. I don't know why it's translated as commendable, because it's grace. It's everything of God imparted to you when you suffer for Christ's sake. And you will stand up, and you will be hit, and you'll be falsely accused, and you'll be slandered, and people close to you may turn on you. Remember Jesus? It was the man that he put in the position of honor that actually betrayed him that very night. The one sitting next to him in the position of Hebrew honor betrayed him that very night. So don't think that he doesn't understand. But look at what he did. That is what matters. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. Sorry, I felt that was falling off. And pray for them which despitefully use you having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. The discretion of a man deferreth his anger, and it is a glory to pass over a transgression.
It's a glory. It's a clear picture of Jesus Christ on earth when you pass over someone's offense towards you. I don't want you attempting to whip up forgiveness today in your own human resolve. I want you to fall on your face before the living God and say, I must learn to forgive as you forgive. I don't want to just do this with a, a quick little pass of the hand. Yes, I've done that. I want God you to do it at the deepest levels. And whenever anyone brings up, who are those that have hurt you in your life? There's a blank slate in front of you and you can't even remember. All you know is who you love. That's all you care about. It's not who hurts you. It's who you love and who Christ is loving through you. Do not have a net of remembrance. That net will cost you. That net will hurt you, even though you think it's going to help you because you can use it in a court of law if necessary. Cut the net. Let it go. Love and forgive the way Jesus does. Holy Father, we can't do this. We can't love this way. We can't forgive this way. We're, we're in, unable to. But we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would in and through us. That whatever is necessary, Lord Jesus, and you know the people in my life, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give me that love, the depths of it, that I would care so deeply. Lord Jesus, remove any net of remembrance. Please. Please, Lord Jesus, set us free. Set us free at the deepest levels of our soul to be a conduit of your love towards our enemies, towards those that despitefully use us. It's in the precious name of the one who forgave us. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludi, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.